Welcome to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism. I've had to rearrange my office, move my office, so it's been a heck of a two weeks. I've been intending on making more videos. I've just been real busy, but let's get on with this. Uh, I want to do a kind of a generic, sort of a, a general overview of a particular topic that I've been looking into now for, well, the last few years anyway, but really seriously, ardently in the last just couple of months. My uh, good good friend, professor down at uh, Florida State and I have been talking a little bit back and forth on the Mithras liturgy in the Greek magical papyri. Now the Mithras liturgy, that's a modern name for the, it's a particular uh, section of the papyri that's quite a few pages, it's big. Anciently, you know, the uh, the papyri date anywhere from 100 B.C., 200 B.C., some say, to 400 of the Common Era. So there's about a 500-year range there, and that's, that's quite extensive. That's longer than America has been a nation where the papyri were written, read, utilized by lots of people. These, the scraps that they have found are from Egypt. Uh, and unfortunately, the Christians in their idiotic, asinine zeal for being the only true religion destroyed and murdered and caused all kinds of chaos and mayhem under the aegis of the Holy Ghost because truth can't be competed with. So they destroyed just hundreds of these books of these papyri. But we are fortunate that we have several hundred fragments this particular one on the Mithras Liturgy is translated by Hans Dieter Betz in the Egyptian Magical Papyri in translation. Excellent translation. The reason I'm bringing up this Mithras Liturgy is because uh, I'm using it as my entry point into a serious study of what else? The mysteries. Now, from my point of view, there can't be any more interesting uh, subject to study about. That's what makes them interesting, is because they are mysteries, right? Yeah. And so, in the process of examining what others identified as their understanding of the mysteries, the handicap we have is that nobody talked about them anciently. Very little anyway. And uh, especially with the Mithras liturgy, nothing was really written down as such. It was more or less the iconographic art out of the Mithraeans. The, uh, the Tarochtini scene where we see Perseus on the back of the bull, killing the bull, sacrificing the bull. And uh, so if, if there's not a lot of description about it, then we have to learn how to interpret the art. Well, this, this is mysterious. It's very interesting. The different rites, uh, rituals, different types of sacred meals that so many different ancient groups participated in, participated with each other. 
uh, in this Greco-Roman era. Now, this is, you know, this is post-Alexander the Great. This is the great Hellenistic period, the day of Jesus. I'll put it that way. It's back in early Christian times, right? And this Greco-Roman uh, uh, era was a huge era of syncretism. And what that means is everybody was grabbing from everybody else. Now, this has to do with this idea of the Mormon mysteries, right? The endowment in the temple. Uh, because nothing makes a Mormon more uncomfortable than telling them the actual origin of their Mormon temple endowment. They, for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're really kind of silly stupid like the early Christians were in trying to attempt to make Jesus utterly unique, absolutely in a vacuum. Nothing was similar to Jesus, right? Well, nothing is similar to the Mormon endowment. It was given by a pristine revelation from God Almighty down into the mind of Joseph Smith as an original revelation of pure truth and therefore the holiest thing in all of Mormonism. Man, to suggest any other different scenario than that really gets them angry or it makes them extremely nervous or it bothers them extremely badly and yet we all know that really truly the large amount of the Mormon temple endowment is Freemasonry adapted, right? We're well aware that Hiram Smith was a Freemason long before the endowment was ever, quote, revealed to Joseph Smith. We know Joseph Smith's family was involved in Freemasonry. We know his neighbors were involved in Freemasonry. Freemasonry was absolutely all around him and we know that he joined Freemasonry first before the endowment showed up. So to suggest that Joseph Smith simply stupidly copied Freemasonry, well, no, no. Actually, he intelligently brought in aspects of the Freemasonic ritual that he wanted to incorporate to produce a ritual that people could participate together in, which solidifies the group cohesion, right? So there's a psychology involved here, right? Don't, don't, that isn't a negative, in my opinion. Because in, now I'm using the, uh, I'm going to use the Mithras liturgy as my jump in point into studying well, the mysteries from antiquity. And, uh, you know, I read multiple times Hugh Nibley's book on the message of the Joseph Smith Papyri when I was an apologist. And, of course, he brings out the Egyptian parallels with the ancient Egyptians, showing that perhaps their rituals, the circumambulation of the king around the mastaba or around the pyramid or whatever, the, the various types of prayers, the the types of rituals with their 
washings and anointings and so on and so forth, he couldn't specifically identify the parallels because, of course, it's taboo to talk about the mysteries. Now, instead of making fun of that, however, just understand, anciently, if you was to talk about the mysteries at all, uh, they killed you. It's, it's that simple. You don't talk about the experience you had in the mysteries. Interesting, uh, was it Augustine or was it Aristotle? One of them said that uh, anciently you don't you don't go to the mysteries to learn anything. You go to experience something. It's not about the intellect. It's not about uh, improving your knowledge. It's about having a specific kind of experience. We know through various different types of analysis and hints uh, that they experienced a vision. So we know that much about them. We actually know a lot more about the ancient mysteries than we did a hundred years ago, and, and that's one of the intriguing aspects of how we are, with our detective capability, we're able to put together two and two because the... Uh, <clears throat> Granted, the Eleusinian mysteries were strictly secret. Well, I think all of them more or less basically was. But with the Eleusinian, uh, you don't mess around. It's like the Swiss Guard. Uh, the reason everybody trusted the Swiss Guard to guard their money is because anybody at all, it did not matter who you were or what station in life you possessed, if you tried to get that money, they lopped your head and stuck your skull right on that front fence, so that the passing public could see they're not kidding. This bank, you don't rob. End of story. There's the head. Right? That's pretty serious stuff. So, pretty much the same thing with a lot of the ancient mysteries. And yet, we have so much comparison because... They couldn't directly give you the mysteries, but they could tell stories that we have now discovered have the mysteries, the themes, the philosophy, the, the action in the particular drama, etc., that involved the mysteries. And we've been able to piece all that together more or less in a partial manner so that we're at least beginning to get our bearings on it. Now understand too, anciently with this, uh, see Rome was much more tolerant than any of the other until of course they stupidly legalized those damn Christians who absolutely slaughtered everyone else once they got the power, you know, never give Christians the power. They're too greedy, egotistical, money-loving, hungry, greedy wretches, man. And I mean any branch of them, including Mormons, too. You give those idiots power, and the rest of all the whole world dies. Convert or die, you know. Such is their attitude of their gospel of love. Ooh, no thanks. Now, the, uh, the Romans were much more humane, much more agreeable that on, on this level, we don't care who you believe in, we really don't care what you believe. 
I mean, you can go ahead and you can have one specific deity. You can bring in 50 or 60. We don't care. But uh, you mess with our politics, we're going to crush you. And the Jews found that out the hard way. Every war the Jews ever had against the Romans, the Romans just crushed them. Yeah. So you don't mess with Rome's politics. Religion, they were very tolerant about. And so you have this mixing. And it's really interesting because the era after Alexander the Great, of course, his world broke up into the three different kingdoms, I believe the Ptolemies, the Macedonians, and the Egyptian, right? And, uh, and of course, everybody had been thrown out of their quarters and there was such a flummox and a mix going on that culturally, man, this was just like a beef stew sort of thing. Everybody was mixing with everybody else from all the countries and everybody was traveling around back and forth trying to uh, get their bearings back in their lives. And of course there were wars and everything until Caesar finally conquered the known world. When was it? 64 BC, 84 BC? I, I'm not up on my Roman history. But, uh, and then once Rome became master totally of the whole ecumen, then, then it began to uh, stabilize. Well, culturally, there was never any one true culture and stamp out all the others within the Roman system. No, that was safe for those heathens called Christians, those loving Christians. And, and yes, I am being very disparaging because they destroyed so much knowledge in their heinous wickedness and myopic stupidity that could have really helped us appreciate other ancient peoples. But uh, Christianity doesn't want that. It wants to be Lord and ruler. And heaven forbid that ever happens. So this mixing meant that they adapted various different rituals, uh, various different symbols. And of course, you have a cultural inflection from the Greek that becomes the Roman, from the Persian that becomes the Egyptian, etc. Everything is mixing with everything. You have all kinds of cults, wild cults running around all over the place. So there was a gigantic mixing and in the process of studying the Mithraic liturgy, I'm recognizing now that it helps to study the Kabiroi, the ancient Orphic mysteries, the ancient uh, Eleusinian mysteries, the ancient Dionysian mysteries, the ancient mysteries of Isis from Egypt, way down south in Egypt, the famous uh, Kibbele mother goddess, uh, Pythagorean influence came through, and then you have the Neo-Pythagorean later after Christ was gone, and you have the early Christian, and you have the Judaic, and all these things were uh, presenting us with their symbols and their interpretations from our point of view. Now, it's true, humanity, mankind, us, you and me, we want certainty. We're real nervous when it comes to uh, something that's in the air, up in the air. We're not, 
we're not quite sure, uh, wait a minute, are we supposed to do this or that or just what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be reading and believing? Can't someone tell us? And so as a human species, we've morbidly put ourselves into a mental intellectual enslavement of what others say. You know, Donald Trump, all that idiot had to say was, believe me, and 42 million people did with no evidence whatsoever. Didn't matter what he said. <laughs> the most astonishing, stupid brainwashing happens when someone says, believe me, you know, all you have to do is have belief and faith. And the whole world just thought, well, that happened anciently a lot too. So there is contradictions is my point that I'm trying to lead up to. There are real brutal differences when you look at how the Egyptians would handle something compared to how the Greeks did it. And then you would say, well, from our point of view, from our own modern culture brainwashed, dumbing down point of view, which we are still being put through, um, we are told to think that if there's any contradictions, then the whole thing's false. So if the Egyptians signified this idea of providence through the female deity, and another culture had it through the male deity, obviously both those cultures were just stupid. They didn't have a clue, because that's a contradiction. They can't be both male and female, and so throw it all out and forget it. That's just a bunch of old wives' tales. It's just mythology, so on and so forth. We like to cover our own ignorance by imagining them as the primitives and we as the enlightened special chosen of the greatness of humanity, right? And believe me, the brainwash has been pretty thorough that way. They love to say, well, they're out of date now. We, we have brought this up to date and what they're doing is they can't comprehend the spiritual idea and so they just simply announce, oh, well, that view's out of date. <laughs> I call bullshit on that concept. I don't buy that at all. Just because we can't adapt and understand and grasp their view of spirituality to then say they're outdated and since we don't understand them, that's obviously useless. Therefore, our view is the correct one. Their view is the incorrect one. That's bullshit. I don't buy into that at all. <laughs> Not a chance. So my whole reason in bringing this up is because the Mormon is faced with the same kind of a paradigm in so many regards. Uh, some of you have been through the temple. I, I did. I did before they even started those rinky-dink, hoity-toity, dorky, videos and films. I've never even seen one. I'm, I'm not going to either. Oh, there goes my heater. Hang on, I'll shut that off and I'll be right back. Stupid interruption anyway. Woohoo! This is the backyard professor being interrupted by my own technology. Berg! <laughs> I'll be back, mateys! Alright, here we are. What was I lying about? I was talking about the idea, the theme here of the mysteries of Mormonism in their endowment. 
in their temperament downward. Of course, for them, their emphasis is this is the pinnacle. This is the peak. This is what you're all looking for. This is the high point of your spirituality is to go through this temple experience, right? And that's true of every mystery involving with the rituals, whoever group, culture, church, you know, is. So it's remarkable that Joseph Smith took from the Freemasons certain aspects in order to give a participation in the mystery to the group. Yes. Now, I became a Freemason quite a few years ago. I was uh, I got to the 32nd degree Masonry. Uh, I haven't been active in it for several years. Um, I have nothing against them. I'm just I'm I'm off doing other things now. And in the process, uh, I got it from the grand historian himself, Arturo de Hoyos. Uh, I got to be good friends with him. He's a wonderful man. Uh, he wrote some sensational books on the mysteries of Freemasonry. And he was telling me that um, Albert Pike just scoured hundreds of the ancient mysteries in order to put together the Scottish Rite, which is an incredible experience to go through. I really enjoyed that. So, um, the Scottish Rite in Freemasonry is a syncretism. Freemasonry itself is a syncretism, and it depends, you know, on which historian you read. It depends on which branch uh, of Freemasonry you go with, the Blue Lodge or the York Rite, which is the Blue Lodge, or the Scottish Rite. And then there's other uh, different developing branches for those who have really a special esoteric desires and experiences and all that. And the American Freemasonry differs from the European, etc. So, I mean, it's not like there's a grand unification here of Freemasonry. Well, Joseph Smith, of course, based on particular rituals and some of the signs, tokens, and priesthood keys that he gave, of course, came from Blue uh, Masonry. And we know that. I know that personally because I became a 32nd degree Mason, and there's, it's obvious. <laughs> so this theme of taking from other traditions is not out of line in the mysteries. And that bothers Mormons because they want theirs to be the pristine original. Well, that's just too bad, boys and girls. That's not what you have. So you don't have that in the ancient times either, which makes this really interesting. In order to come to a knowledge, uh, an understanding, a philosophical justification for even studying these ancient arcane, wild, weird sounding, strange, symbolic images, whether they're literary or artistic, 
sculpted or painted, whatever. The theme that all of the mysteries want us to focus on is that which is greater than ourselves. So you can't, I mean, if you went through the Mormon endowment, for instance, and you got nothing out of it. I, I really did not get a whole lot. I, I went through it dozens of times. The one time, I, I actually, <clears throat> they hurry you through it so flipping fast. I was in the celestial room, and I sat down to try to ponder, and a gentleman, all in white, of course, uh, came in, and I, I rose to ask him a question, and he said, oh, well, no, we can't talk about that here. We're in the celestial room of the temple. Where can, oh, well, we don't talk about that. And he said, besides, you need to hurry through because we've got another group coming. Well, that doesn't do jack for you. That is not what the point was supposed to be at all. They've, they've dropped down to the absolute lowest common stupid denominator of how many endowments can we get done for everybody? They've completely lost the point of the mysteries. In fact, Mormonism now uses the temple as a basis to keep acquiring more money from its members and to keep them in church. The mysteries have nothing to do with being in a specific church. That's how far away. This is why I've come to say, and this is unfortunate in some respects, but I don't have any other point, I, I don't have any other choice, I should say, than to say, uh, even with its, and this will probably offend some people. I'm not trying to offend people. I'm trying to come to an understanding based on my ability, what little I have, of comparing what I have been studying from the ancient rituals and traditions and ideas and mythologies and the stories and the deities, how they interact and interlace with humanity here on earth. Um, it's, the theme is never about being a member of any particular party. It doesn't matter whether it's political, philosophical, or religious. Everybody in the ancient world went through the Eleusinian mysteries. It did not matter what religion you were. It did not matter what political persuasion you were, you know. But today, you know, the Mormons, they would never let Baptists or Jews or Lutherans or Catholics go through their temples and get their endowments. Oh, no, these are for us only. See, that kind of parochial, uh, self-chosen individualism, none of that has anything to do with the mysteries. That is not what the mysteries are. This is the age-old dichotomy that uh, Gershom Sholem, in his magnificent book, The Mystical Shape of the Godhead, highly recommend you read it. This is the argument, this is the battle line drawn between the individual and our spirituality and the corporate group. 
and their laws that you must obey in order to be worthy of having spirituality. And that's a battle. And it's always been a battle. It appears to me at this point that the organizations, the, the churches, and, you know, I, I mean no disrespect, but it's obvious that the, uh, the sacraments, Catholic, Baptist, Mormon, it does not matter. The sacraments, the, the baptisms, the, well, the endowment, the, the attempt to interpret or to experience the mystery. It doesn't matter whether you go through the Catholics or the, the Lutherans, if they even do anything like this, with rituals, I don't know, or the Mormons. It's all a placebo. And that's so unfortunate compared to the, there's been new information come out within the last, say, 20 years. And it has significantly altered our perception of the entire rock bottom ground, the, the bedrock idea of the experience of the mysteries, thanks to a brand new book, Brian Marescu, The Immortality, out just last year, 2021. I bought my copy in July, and that book forever changed my whole perception. Since then, I've read dozens of books most of it from his bibliography. I've been reading uh, Carl Ruck and Peter Kingsley and some of those fantastic classicists and authors. And uh, uh, R. Gordon Wasson, I'm just blown away by what I am discovering about what was the real essence of the ancient mysteries and there is now beginning to come forward because we changed our questions so that we changed our focus so that we now know where to research and what to research. We're able to actually bring in a scientific analysis of this issue of what was it that made the ancient mysteries tick. Eleusius went on for 2,000 years. Something kept those people coming to the mysteries. And they really did not talk about it much. When they said they'll put you to death for, for profaning the sacred, everyone took that seriously. They had experiences that changed their life's outlook for real. And it was not a philosophical discourse or a historical discourse or a religious talk like I'm giving to you in this video. No, it was an experience of the sacred. Brian Marescu really brings that out, as does Karl Ruck. I would advise you to start reading them. The area I want to focus on just briefly before I close out here 
is that it was disappointing to me. This Mormon endowment theme, this idea that this is going to give me the ultimate reality, and yet they wouldn't even let me enjoy it. They get you in there and they there's a there's a timed clock schedule. You have to do things just right. Then you have to hurry up and you know, go eat lunch and then go back through your second endowment. We've got to fulfill four endowments today, man. We've got a number to fill. We've got a schedule to keep and all that. That is the commercialized bastardizing of the sacred. And it's too bad because it's ended up being a placebo, of course. That, that's inevitable. Because there's a built-in safety feature with the mysteries themselves, that they remain sacred even if someone tries to profane them. And it's remarkable how this works. And Brian Marescu talks about that quite a bit, as does Carl Ruck. Oh boy, Carl Ruck is huge on that. He's, he's good stuff. So the mysteries are never destroyed. Now, Christianity, of course, or early Christianity, you know, the self-righteous prigs who tried to murder everyone and be righteous about it. <laughs> God, I hate those people. I'm sorry they ever did what they did, you know. But they did what they did, so it is what it is. In the process of eliminating the mysteries and feeling so smug and superior, we have the truth birth of Christ, not your pagan Mithras. Well, the Christians just simply took over the pagan mysteries. And here's why. Because where the leadership of the Christian church was, kind of like the Mormon leadership today, the leadership of the Christian church had one set of beliefs, but the vast majority of the population had their own way of worship. And they never were converted. They just kept on with the old ways because the old ways were the real thing. Well, when the Christian leaders came in with their swords of justice and righteousness and began hacking away at those filthy, dirty pagans, those evil heathens, you join us or die because we are the righteous ones. They thought they succeeded at destroying the ancient mysteries. The pagans, the heathen, the sinners, the devil worshippers. All they had to do was label them, right? Uh-oh, I've got another phone call. Oh, and this one I've got to take. This is my good friend, Kish Kuman. I'm going to tell him he's interrupted a second video of mine. Hang on, I'll be right back. Hello, Kish Kuman, my good friend. How are you? <laughs> ah, it's always good to talk to you. You're never going to believe this, bud. You are interrupting another video I'm making, and I've got this on recording, so you're going to be famous like crazy. <laughs> so I'm going to shut this video off real quick, and I'll talk to you here for a few. Okay, hang on, you guys. I'll be right back. I've got to talk to my buddy, Kish Kuman. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. That was my good friend from Florida State, of all people. 
And uh, we were just talking about the Mithras Liturgy, again, one of the mysteries. I'm going to be giving a lecture later on this month. I will record that lecture and post it on YouTube on the Mithras Liturgy to a group of uh, Western esoteric scholars. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But So my overall theme here is the dominant religion can't stamp out the true mystery, the true mysteries, if you want to put it in the plural. They'll just go underground. They will be hidden. You can't destroy them. And, and that's why they keep cropping up. Now, today, our habit, and I don't know if it's good or bad, it's probably more bad than good, we like to label things because that gives us the false impression that then we understand it, right? I mean, you hear an idea and you go, oh, well, that, that doesn't match my doctrine that I believe in. So that's probably Gnosticism. Or, oh, well, no, that's just, that's Judaism. Or, oh, no, that's just Mormonism. And by making a label, you think that you've put it in its proper place in relation to your belief, right? Nothing is further from the truth. So for, for, the, uh, for the early Christians, they said, oh, well, that's just paganism or Gnosticism or, or the heretics. Oh, gosh, they loved that word heretics, you know. Mormons love to use the word apostates, right? Label them, and then they're controlled. <laughs> right? So, a group such as early Christians or Mormons or Lutherans or Baptists or Catholics, throughout the course of history, we've got great evidence that the groups want groupthink. They don't want you to have your individual spirituality. Isn't that odd? And yet it makes sense. The group, the corporation, the church, whatever you want to call it, has its agenda. Its emphasis is going to be on it. So all of its ordinances, rituals, commandments, laws, etc. are for its benefit not for each individual person. And for the group to be cohesive, to be a success, it does not want the individual to understand that you can have your own epiphany without its sacraments, its endowments, its politics, its definitions of doctrine, scripture, ritual, sin, righteousness, priesthood keys, etc. Once you have your own experience, it makes the group irrelevant. Not as a social unit, 
but as a spiritualizer, I'll put it that way, as, as a way, as a means, a way and means to acquire God or to get to God or even to understand God, the group wants you to think its way because it has received the revelation. Now, anciently, in the shamanism, it was the shaman who received the revelation and then passed that on, right? Today, Mormonism loves to teach, well, it's the prophet that receives the revelation and he passes it on. So there's some similarities there. Yet the shaman also introduced individuals into the ability, option, and capability of ascending the oxus mundi, the pillar, the cosmic tree, yourself, and getting to the heavenly vision, to the heavenly mystery, so that you acquired it. But that's not what churches want you to do today. They do not emphasize your individual connection. They want to be the middleman between you and thee. And that's where the churches have become the placebo. That was the whole reason I wanted to bring that up. In the mysteries, it was not about group. Even though they did it in groups, it was not about joining a specific cultural or social unit or a, being in a certain geographical context of truth. It was about acquiring your own sacred experience for yourself so that you knew. Now, I know there's some Mormons who are going to say, yeah, but the church does encourage you to gain your own testimony. Yes, in the mystery experience, that is the common denominator of all the mystery themes and religions, practices and rituals, the mystery experience in the mysteries, the personal testimony that the individual acquired was that they became one with God. John 17 comes to mind the great intercessory prayer of Jesus. And granted, the ancient context was him and his apostles. He wasn't talking about the rest of the world. And yet the mysteries do teach that we can generalize from that because this is the ancient idea of the one and the many. We, the many, all of us humans, are part and parcel of the one deity, the ground of being. This is what the mysteries pointed to. Once you come to that kind of a realization, then your personal testimony automatically makes all other group institutions of any kind completely superfluous.
That's why they don't want you to get your actual testimony. They set the parameters and limits of what is a proper testimony. Isn't that crazy? You know, the temple-related questions that Mormons present to so many Mormons. If you can answer these questions correctly, then you have a proper testimony. They think they can dictate to you what God is going to say. They think they can dictate to God what he's allowed to say to you, and vice versa. I, that's pretty arrogant when you stop and recognize that for what it is, those temple-related questions. But they don't see it that way. Of course, no. They would deny that. It doesn't matter. That's the fundamental fact, right? They will allow you to enter heaven through their interpretation and no one else's. Not even Jesus's. Because, of course, they say their interpretation is Jesus's. Well, even before Jesus, millions of people have been acquiring this oneness with the divine through the vertical ascensions from time immemorial. I mean, the mysteries, really, truly, historically, we could justifiably say they begin way back in hoary antiquity, 40,000 B.C., going back to the ancient cave drawings in France, the caves of Lascaux and some of those. There are now new interpretations saying, yeah, they're their acquisition of ascensions to heaven up a cosmic axis occurred 40,000 B.C. and had been doing so ever since. Well, that's almost two great procession of the equinoxes. I mean, that's a long time ago. That was before church was a twinkle in God's eye, right? So, this idea, the other thing I want to touch on that is so important, and it just recently dawned on me in this last couple of years, and now it's being reinforced through my reading regimen that I have given to myself now. And it's, it's remarkably amazing that the mysteries have never disappeared. They have simply stayed away from the profane, and in many cases, they have been hidden in plain sight when the profane seek to destroy them. They can't be destroyed. They will crop up again, sometimes centuries later, in an entire different sphere of humanity, in a completely different geographical location. And those who are in charge, who have the true church, etc., they think they're doing just fine with their placebo, and they have no idea that by chasing out the mystery, they've lost it, because they think they have it. And all it is, is a placebo effect. The most astonishing thing is, thank goodness we live in the day and age now to where they can't just kill you when they want to, when you believe differently, or think differently, or look differently, or smell differently, like they could way back when in Jesus' day. Thank goodness the laws have become more enlightened that we are protected to have our religious liberty, right? As well as political liberty. 
I'm not forced to live under a dictator, for instance. So this idea is when the, when the church began to stamp out the heretics, the heresies, you've read the early Christian apologists, Irenaeus and Tertullian and Oregon and, well, Augustine and uh, Gregory and Basel and all of those great guys constantly arguing against the ancient Orphix, oh, and the Clementine recognitions, and Clement of Alexandria, boy, he's a big one, uh, arguing against the Pythagoreans and the Orphix and the Dionysics and the Eleusinian mysteries and all of those heathen scum. And one of the early apologists said that the devil actually imitated the sacraments of Christ before Christ even showed up on earth. I mean, they came up with the most heinous, stupid, idiotic, just moronic arguments. <laughs> but the mysteries have always been about the same thing. They've just had a cultural inflection. Well, when they stamped all these people out and destroyed their scripture, the mysteries disappeared and then cropped up later. But where they were hidden in plain sight so that they were safe is not in the scriptures. The scripture, you see, was a politically motivated situation where the church dominant, the church supreme, gets to decide which book is scripture and which one they don't like. So any book that said what they already believed they accepted as from God, and any book that gave any other kind of, even a different cultural inflection, or used a symbolism that they weren't used to seeing or understanding, oh, no, we don't want that. Throw that out and destroy it. So that the canon itself has nothing to do with truth and reality. It's just a political statement by a particular group of people who thought in a particular way. So we really aren't beholden to that canon as such, as the only basis to acquire truth and knowledge. At least I don't feel like I am anymore. At one time I thought I was, but that was because I was brainwashed into that belief. Well, this is sacred scripture. Well, all of the writings are sacred scripture to someone. Now that's interesting, yeah. But see, again, we label things, well, that's just Apocrypha, or that's Pseudepigrapha, that's lesser than the canon. You see how neatly they have absolutely tightened up the package and prejudiced you automatically from the very start against anything they didn't like. That's fascinating, isn't it? Once you begin to see that, you say, well, what does that other stuff actually say? Well, here's the kicker. And I know you're not going to believe me. I'll, I'll present more videos showing this material and this evidence. You're not going to believe this. But the, the Pagani, now the Pagani was just all of the other folk out there in the countryside. The Pagani, the pagans, the, ooh, they're evil. Gentiles, pagans. You have to label them as other. Right? And then you automatically feel justified in feeling superior and wiping them out. At least that's how they used to think. Thank God that we don't have that view today. Whew. Thank you for the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. We need to protect those. 
Absolutely. Because you can be darn sure if someone could kill you for believing differently than they do in order for them to gain power and control, if they could get away with that, they probably would try that, which is just so stupidly ridiculous. And the majority of those kind of people are going to claim Jesus as their Lord. Jesus, the one that said, love your enemies. Yeah, they love to say his name. They hate to practice what he taught. It's unfortunate, but that's how it works. That's how they are, you know. The pagans outsmarted the church. What they did, during, especially during the Inquisition, the witch hunts. Oh, here's my friend Kish Kuman again. <laughs> Boy, he's hot on this Mithras liturgy. Hang on. Hello, young man. You're interrupting my video again. Do you want to say hi to everybody? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, dear land. <laughs> All right. You guys got to hear hello from my friend Kish Kuman. He's the guy in Florida State. Anyway, let me shut off this video and I'll talk to you a little more. I'll be, I'll be right back, you guys. Oh, that was good to talk to Kish Kuman. He's... Uh, we're getting ready for this uh, lecture I'm going to be given on the uh, Mithraic Liturgy. Uh, if you guys want to attend it, you need to let me know pretty quick, and I will. I need your emails. Um, just send it in to the to the Mormon discussions, and they'll get me the emails, and then you can. Uh, he will invite you uh, to the lecture on Zoom. It's going to be on Zoom. So anyway, I, I'm looking forward to this. This is exciting. He just shared some Roman ideas with the Emperor Augustus and Tiberius with me that has to do with all this stuff. It's fascinating stuff. <laughs> He's good with the Romans. Now, what I was lying about before is I wanted to get to this theme of how cleverly the mysteries was hidden from the official God's church in the fairy tales, the children's stories. Now, this is remarkably ingenious, man. Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, uh, the Three Piggies, Jack and the Beanstalk. All of the mysteries were turned into the children's stories so that when the church, especially in the medieval ages, well, they were hidden in the myths as well as the fairy tales. So when the church came to destroy all the materials or threaten the people for being apostates or whatever, they were just simply telling children's stories. And so... They say, oh, well, those are just myths. Those are just stories. So that's harmless. That's nothing. That doesn't threaten us. And that's how it was preserved. <laughs> In the myths of the Greeks, the myths are true. That's what Joseph Campbell taught. That's what Mercedes... And I know there's a bantying around right now of scholarship that says, well, their views are sort of old and outdated. Bull. Don't buy into that. What they're doing is today's scholars 
are so bereft of any kind of spiritual understanding whatsoever that they don't grasp the point of the mythologies. Because today our scholarship is so stupidly literal-minded that they can't think any other way. We've narrowed down our vision to such a narrow spectrum of silly interpretation. Historicist literal. Everything else doesn't matter. Well, that's just naive. That's just ludicrous, as far as I'm concerned. Here's the issue with the mythology and the fairy tales and the stories of Hephaestus, of Zeus and Hera, of Hermes, of Apollo, of Prometheus. What was the fire that Prometheus stole? That's a whole video in and of itself. All of these stories, the myth, the myths, and then later on in the fairy tales, the harmless, silly Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. The stupid stories of Hansel and Gretel and Rapunzel and on and on and on. Very interesting. The ideas of the gnomes and the dwarves and the fairies and the wee people, the little people. The Cyclops in Homer. Circe and her pharmacon. Her drugs that she turned the men into pigs with. All these stories are perfectly harmless to a narrow-minded historicist literalist. But they are the essence of the mysteries. The thing is, you have to have the key to the code. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going to give it to you in this video. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm serious. I'll give it to you later, perhaps, or you can go find it yourself, which is going to make it much more enjoyable for you. Um, but it's out there, and I'm convinced it's real. No kidding. So this is the fun thing. It's not phony or unreal to those who experience it. Even if the church kicks you out because your experience doesn't match what they expect you to have. But they don't get to control the eternities. Oh, they love to imagine they do, but they don't. So we keep moving forward in our knowledge. We keep assessing our understanding. We keep attempting a comparison of the various philosophical systems. Sure, we study the history along with it, but the symbolic interpretations, the astronomical, the pharmacological, the biological, all tie in with not only the human world, but the animal world, the plant world, the Milky Way, the ancient constellations, all of these stories 
these mythologized heroes and gods and goddesses. Those are the mysteries in code. The myths are true. Joseph Campbell got it right. Here's why. The myths, what we do today in our spiritually bereft culture is we concretize the metaphor and therefore we miss the whole point. The metaphor, the mythic story, or the fairy tale, or the, the information we get in a lot of our movies today, are pointing to something beyond, and you don't want to look at the finger because you'll miss the point. Look toward where it's pointing. And Joseph Campbell, like him or hate him, I don't care. He got this right. The myths are pointing us toward opening up to the transcendence. And there's where the true spirituality resides, in my opinion, because it is by acquiring or at least attempting to acquire the whole that true spirituality begins and expands from there. And different cultures have done so with their different stories, and it is true. Some of those stories contradict other stories. Some of their symbolisms are way different, and the interpretations of those symbolisms come into play, and they're way different than a different interpretation from over here. In fact, some of them are blatantly contradictory, and so we enlightened, smarter than those stupid primitives, with our historical literal view, our Aristotelian ground of interpretation, A is not A, therefore, if it's a goddess, and this guy says it's a god, there's a contradiction, therefore they can't have anything to do with reality or truth. And we completely miss the point, because it's not the symbol that you're supposed to stop at in our learning. And it's not the metaphor in a concrete form from the symbol that you're supposed to stop at. You're supposed to go beyond. And that's where the mysteries take us. So anyway, hopefully I've whetted your appetite. That was the whole idea of this video is to, is to say, look, we, uh, Bultman, oh, probably a century ago now, it's, it's, it's been about a hundred years now, uh, Boltman demythologized all the scriptures. In other words, he put on 
a historical, literal interpretation, and of course this is certainly the view of the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith, um, everything to him was just literal, factual, when it said so in the scripture, that's exactly what it meant and all that. And he just, he completely missed the boat on so much that it was just idiotic. It was just astounding how far off he was on so much. And yet there are some sparks of light in some of the things he taught that I think are really interesting. For instance, his one statement that is the fundamental ground truth is by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. Now, what I get out of that is that when we, in our study of the mysteries, be they the Roman, the Greek, the Persian, the Mithraic, the early Christian, the Judaic, the Kabbalistic, the alchemical, the ancient astrological, the Persian, it doesn't matter which, the Babylonian the Mesopotamian, the Mesoamerican, the Native North American, whether it's the Druid or the Norse, it is irrelevant when we are approaching these mysteries, when we run into the blatant contradictions, that's where the clues that's when you begin to pay close attention. Instead, today, they just throw it all out. Oh, well, we can't have any contradiction. Light is only a particle. <laughs> and then comes another quantum physicist and he says, light is only a wave. Well, a particle is a specific point right there. A wave is spread all the way out into infinity. It can't be both, and yet it is. Now, there's a beautiful illustration of when I say the blatant contradictions is where we want to pay attention at. It is the exact same thing with the stories, with the fairy tales with the symbolisms and their metaphors pointing beyond actual history. It's not necessary to really believe Zeus, Hephaestus, Hermes actually literally existed as men and gods, or Hera as the goddess, or Rhea, or whichever goddess you want, in order to appreciate the truth that the story is pointing to. That's what we've lost, because obviously there's not a man with a gray beard up in the sky throwing lightning bolts. You childish thinkers. That's just mythology. Well, as it turns out, it's the lunatic, idiot, short-sighted, historical, literal thinker 
who is being the childish, ridiculous thinker. Not those who say, Zeus is very real. The question is, what is he representing? We say, oh, well, the old man in the heavens with the beard sitting on a throne up on the mountain. and all. That's just childish nonsense. Of course it is. Because you've concretized the metaphor. You don't understand the thing you're saying. Once you find out what Zeus is and what his actions symbolize and what they mean in interaction with the other deities and goddesses, then it begins to open you up toward what it's really talking about. The mysteries are perfectly safe from profane eyes. In our day and age, it's the literalist and the historicist who has to imagine, well, Zeus couldn't have existed on Mount Olympus in 600 BC because there's no archaeological evidence for Zeus. Therefore, you're an idiot to believe in him. Maybe the idiot is putting on the literal interpretation and not recognizing that that's the wrong approach. That would be my proposal. So we've got a lot to go through. I know I'm opening up cans of worms here. Trust me, you're going to love all of this. It's quite exciting. It's fun to discover new angles and new truths all the time. It really is. So thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos. As always, I love watching them. I love you guys, my audience. If you would be so kind, please drop into the backyardprofessor.org and hit that donate button and hit the subscribe because we've got a lot more materials to share with you. We love sharing them with you here at Mormon Discussions, Inc. And we'll do a lot more for you, with you, by you, along with you. We're having a ball here, and we hope you're having a ball there. So in the meantime, remember, be good, do well, have fun. Make lots of friends be happy. Be good citizens of your country. And love your fellow man and fellow woman with a human love because they're not so different than we are after all. And I'll see you in the next Backyard Professor video.